Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. And good evening, everybody. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York on our national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Tonight on Indivisible, sex and the Constitution and a difficult conversation that progressives are beginning to have among each other on health care after the failure of the Republican health care bill in the House. On these Tuesday night editions of Indivisible, we talked about how norms are changing under Trump. We talk about that every Tuesday. But one norm that has not changed is that we are an incredibly polarized country on health care, right? Here is Democratic Senator Bernie Sanders on Fox News Channel with Brett Baer after the Republican health care bill failed in the House. I happen to believe, and I know not everybody agrees with me, I believe that health care is a right of all people. I believe that there is something wrong when we are spending... Excuse me, where did that right come from in your mind? Being a human being. Being a human being. And what I believe, Brett, you may disagree with me, I believe that if she is poor and you are rich, she is entitled to the same quality health care that you have because she's a human being. That was actually Bernie Sanders with Brett Baer in 2015. But you get the idea. Health care is a right. Is it? Not according to Republican Senator Mike Lee. Insofar as he's talking about a federal right, you know, rights are things the government can't do to you. Uh, rights are not something that the government must do for you or provide for you. Interesting. And the repeal and replace Obamacare bill failed, as you know, because even within the Republican Party, the more centrist wing and more conservative Freedom Caucus wing couldn't form a coalition. But that failure is seeming to come with new opportunities now. President Trump is signaling an interest in finding a fix for rising health care costs that some Democrats can sign on to, leaving the Republicans in the Freedom Caucus behind on the far right. Here is Chief of Staff Reince Priebus on Fox News Sunday. At the end of the day, I believe that it's time for the party to start governing, and I think that's important. I also think, though, that Democrats can come to the table as well. And if you look at what the president uh, said in the Oval just after that comment, he said, you know, perhaps... It's time for us to start talking to some moderate Democrats as well and come up with you know, a bipartisan solution. And look who's speaking Reince Priebus's language. It's Democratic Senate leader Chuck Schumer right on the Senate floor. Now, I know many of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle do care deeply about fixing the nation's health care problems. And we're ready to do that with them in a bipartisan way. But of course, repeal must be taken off the table and the president must stop hurting citizens by undermining the Affordable Care Act. Not so fast, Chuck Schumer, to something too market-oriented. Again, Bernie Sanders. Ideally, what, where we should be going is to join the rest of the industrialized world and guarantee health care to all people as okay. a right, 
And that's why I'm going to introduce a Medicare for all single payer program. Short term, this is what we could do. That was Bernie Sanders after the House bill failed on CNN on Sunday. So are we at a moment of complete fracturing on both sides of the aisle or a unique opportunity for the stale old gridlock to break and surprising new coalitions to form? By the way, remember when candidate Donald Trump said early in his campaign that he was for single payer. It worked really well in uh, some other countries and could have worked here potentially. So this is a call-in show, folks, and who knows? I'm curious to hear from two groups. Trump voters, you want lower premiums and choice of doctor? Why not single payer Medicare for all? If you're younger than Medicare age, you know how much choice your parents or your grandparents have. Why have insurance companies at all to funnel you into plans with limited doctor lists? And Democrats, should your party do business with Trump and the more moderate Republicans? If all parties can come up with some kind of bipartisan compromise on health care, call us, Trump voters and Democrats, 844-745-TALK, 844 844- Seven four five talk Trump voters, are you open to single-payer, potentially, if you voted for repeal and replace as one of your reasons for being for Trump? And Democrats, if bipartisan compromise, something short of Medicare for all, is now possible, should your party do business with Donald Trump? 844-745-TALK. We'll save some lines for Republicans, some lines for, Dem- lines for Democrats. 844-745-TALK. And with me while your calls are coming in are two guests, very different, but who both might hold potential for Trump to reach out to. For the last two years of the Obama administration, Andy Slavitt ran Medicare, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and the Affordable Care Act exchanges. For 10 years before that, he was with the insurance company United Healthcare. Martha Kuhl is secretary-treasurer of the Nurses' Union, known as National Nurses United. She was a Bernie Sanders delegate to the Democratic Convention last summer and is an advocate for a single-payer or a Medicare-for-all health insurance system. Great that you both could join us. Welcome, both of you, to Indivisible. Hi. Hi. Thank Thank you, you. Brian. Um, Martha Kuhl, you first. For Trump voters who wanted to repeal and replace Obamacare, can you make a case for single-payer? I think I can. I think already 60% of Americans support a single-payer plan. No one wants to give up Medicare, and having a Medicare-for-all system would address some of the issues that were problems with the ACA. One of the reasons people didn't want it repealed, and it did make some advances, was because it required insurance companies to take patients or individuals with pre-existing existing conditions. Medicare for All does that. It covered people um, up till 26. Medicare for All would do that. And studies show that a Medicare for All plan could deliver quality care at much lower costs in our current system. And that is one of the number one concerns that people have is the rising costs of health care in and it would also eliminate waste and lobbying and advertising associated with private insurance, and Medicare for All buying prescription drugs could rein in the cost of drugs. I think there's much in that that even Trump promised, as you said. He said on the campaign trail he wanted to lower costs. He wanted everyone covered. He thought that drug prices should be reined in. 
I think a Trump supporter could could support Medicare for all. For for the uninitiated, how do you pay for Medicare for all? If Medicare for all is really single payer in the sense that pretty much every doctor, every hospital, every provider in the country is in the system, and you can just go to any doctor or any other provider, uh, more or less, um, and you're just paying your 20% of the bill, if it's the same as Medicare, um, how does the government uh, pay for all that? There'd have to be a tax hike, right? Well, right now, I know my state the best. I'm from California. 70% of all health care spending in California is paid with public dollars via, via the ACA subsidies, via um, Medicaid, via which uh, the ACA expanded, via other kinds of public dollars for um, administration costs. And... 70% of every dollar already being paid by the public, we only need to pool our resources. And right now, most people who have health care on their jobs are paying uh, premium co-pays every month, high out-of-pocket deductibles and high out-of-pocket uh, co-pays right. for so, doctor's visits. So, so they would save that money. Monies. Yeah, they would to, save that money. But to a, to a tax, to be fair, right? Um, we, we have a Medicare tax, a dedicated yeah. Medicare payroll tax on our paychecks now. There would have to be some kind of a tax for a Medicare for All uh, program. But you're saying it would be worth it. It would push costs down in the long run. There'd be fewer premiums, deductibles, all those nickel and dimings, right? Yes. Most people would probably pay less than they do now. Some people, of course, with the tax would pay more if it was progressive. And right now, we're paying probably per capita twice as much as many, many countries, and we're getting lower indices of health. You know, there's higher infant mortality. We live shorter lives. We have more diabetes. Um, we are ranked of, as 30th out of 40 countries by the OECD in infant mortality. We should not be that far behind for all the money we're spending. So there's plenty of money already going to health care. It's just not going to actual right. care. Andy Slavitt, your piece in USA Today is called Here's the Bipartisan Path Forward on Health Care. And as somebody who's been in with the Democrats, ran Medicare for Obama, Medicaid, the Affordable Health uh, Affordable Care Act exchanges. Your plan starts with funding payments to reduce the size of deductibles for lower income Americans, continuing to enforce the individual mandate so there's money from young healthy people that keeps going into the system, and goes on to allowing the states the flexibility to increase competition to reduce costs. Now, that's not as easily relatable. You might say that's not as sexy as either single-payer that we just heard about, or Rand Paul or someone say, let's just have a free market. So can you make people passionate about that kind of fix? Well, you know, pragmatism doesn't have a slogan, but I would say this, you know, people just spent the last several months coming face to face with what it's like and what it would feel like to lose access to health care. And I think if there's anything that we take away and that the country takes away and Hopefully, the politicians in Washington take away is that we have to keep going forward. Over the last, you know, I've spent my career in healthcare. I've spent it trying to get more people access to better care. And for decades, we've made almost no progress until 2010. And in 2010, 
and then really beginning in earnest in 2014, we've seen the most dramatic improvements in our healthcare system. And, and I think uh, to take uh, Martha's earlier point, we're not nearly where we should be, but we have cut the uninsured rate in half. We have reduced medical cost growth. We are on a, we are on a right track. And we need to keep going forward. And I think the American people said that we have to keep going forward and we have to keep making progress. So there's improvement opportunities. And I think the most interesting thing of all right now is I think the American public is tired of having either the Democrats or the Republicans own the plan for health care. I think people are tired of having one party driving things and the other party pointing fingers, and it's too complicated. So what I laid out is something that's simple. Let's build some trust. Let's do some simple things that demonstrate to the American people that we have their backs and that we're going to continue to move uh, positively in healthcare. When Chuck Schumer and Reince Priebus both make noises about compromise, like we heard in those clips from the last few days, do you think that's the kind of thing, your plan, is the kind of thing they have in mind? Do you know? Well, look, I, I think... the. In the first step, it's the, the the burden is almost entirely 100% on Trump and the Trump administration. And the reason I say this is because as of even today, uh, there were noises coming out of Congress saying that they want to revive the repeal of the ACA. And I think the first thing that is important for Trump to do is to send a message to say, you know what, we've tried that, it's a disaster, it's not what people want. It polls at 17%. Uh, we're going to move forward in a, in a more bipartisan direction. The second thing he has to do is within his power, he doesn't need Congress for this, there are two decisions that if he makes will make the difference between a 30% higher premiums that people have to pay or lower. And how he makes those decisions will determine whether or not he is aiming to blow up the ACA in order to have some sort of grand negotiating strategy or whether he really is on the side of the American people and he is really going to do things to move costs down. All right. Let's have some of this conversation among Democrats first. And we're going to put two callers on the line at the same time. And they're both named Sarah. So we have Sarah in Louisville and we have Sarah in Pittsburgh, two Democrats, I think, Mm -hmm. coming from two slightly different places. Sarah in Pittsburgh, you there? Yes. Hi there. Sarah, Sarah in Louisville, you there? I am. Thank you. Sarah and Louisville, go. Okay. Um, so I am diabetic, um, type 1. Healthcare has been a uh, challenge, I guess to say the least, since I graduated from um, college. I would say that uh, Democrats and the Republicans are definitely going to have to work together on this one. Um, from my point of view, um, I, you know, and obviously... We all use health care um, from about the time we're born until the time we die. Um, there needs to be an understanding of the um, cost and the impact on quality of life. Um, and in order for that to happen, uh, there will be need to be a conversation across party lines and a trust that is built between the people and the government that the government wants to take care of the people. Sarah in Pittsburgh, what are you thinking? Um, well, my first, uh, the first thing I want to say is that I absolutely don't think that the Democrats should compromise with the Republicans because I think that they're philosophically opposed to Medicare for all, and 
that's what I believe is what we should do. And um, secondly, I just want to add that I am a physician and I have been, uh, I have practiced in the United States and I've practiced in Australia, which has Medicare for all. And I've been a patient here in the U.S. and a patient in Australia. And I can say without reservation that Medicare for all works and it's better for doctors and patients. And um, I just don't think that the Republicans believe in that. I don't think they want to cover people. I think they are primarily interested in health care as a business. And, and um, therefore, I don't think the Democrats should go along with their plans. Mm. Now we have a doctor and a patient on the line. Sarah, what are you thinking as you hear Sarah in Pittsburgh there in Louisville? Um, I, would, I would second everything that Sarah in Pittsburgh has to say. Um, I do feel exactly the same way in this moment. Um, and I, I think from um, I'm also looking at this long term. Um, I'm not sure it's something that can be settled inside of a month or the next six months or the next four years. Um, kind of hoping not, um, but I do think that this will be a need to be a cultural shift, um, and, and that on takes some level, time. much bigger than uh, just yeah healthcare and in terms of lifestyle also. So, Doctor Sarah, the kind of patch that Andy Slavitt is talking about, pragmatic, not sexy. Uh, you know, funding payments to reduce the size of deductibles for lower-income Americans, continuing to enforce the individual mandate, giving some more market flexibility to states that hopefully will reduce costs. If the president and enough Democrats and enough Republicans were to get together on that, would you oppose it? Would you want your representative as a Democrat to vote against it? Uh, yes, I would, um, because when you have complicated plans like that, um, there's so many ways for the plan to be uh, undercut later on. It victimizes people who are not clever enough to uh, figure out how to get rebates or or work their way through the system. I mean, it's it's too complicated, I think, for for to be workable for everybody. Doctor Sarah. Patient Sarah, Sarah in Pittsburgh, Sarah in Louisville, thank you very much for both calling up and sharing your views. And when we continue in a minute, I will ask both our guests about a proposal coming from two Republican centrists in Congress, including Susan Collins of Maine, that might actually be able to bridge the gap between a centrist pragmatic fix and single payer. We'll explain in a minute. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255.
As far as single payer, it works in Canada. It works incredibly well in Scotland. It could have worked in a different age, which is the age you're talking about here. What I'd like to see is a private system without the artificial lines around every state. All right, Donald Trump. There's that Donald Trump clip that we couldn't find before, <laughs> and it was from August uh, uh, 2015. So he had already announced his candidacy, and he was saying nice things about single-payer health insurance, at least in other countries. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York on our national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration, Indivisible. And on these Tuesday night editions of Indivisible, we talk about how norms, how norms are changing under Trump. Uh, right now, we're talking about health care norms all scrambled after the failure of the House bill the other day with um, two great guests, Andy Slavitt, who for the last two years of the Obama administration ran Medicare, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and the Affordable Care Act exchanges. For 10 years before that, he was with the insurance company United Healthcare, and Martha Cool, Secretary Treasurer of the Nurses Union, known as the National known as National Nurses United. She was a Bernie Sanders delegate to the Democratic Convention last summer and is an advocate for a single payer or Medicare for all health insurance system. I wonder if the gap between you two, single-payer versus bipartisan compromise, might be bridged by a Susan Collins of Maine, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Republican bill that aims for bipartisanship in the Senate that, as I understand it, would give states federal support, meaning money, to enact the health care system of their choice, either a very market-oriented plan, some states might go for that, an Obama care type plan, that's the centrist plan in this model, or even a single payer type plan if a particular state wanted to do that. Um, Martha, are you familiar with this bill? And what do you think of that model? Well, one of the ways that um, Medicare for all actually would rein in costs is that everybody would be in the same insurance pool. And there wouldn't be a lot of different uh, insurance uh, options out there in terms of uh, different purchasing different plans, different networks, different services, different administrative costs, different uh, advertising, etc. And so it would, it would probably not work as well to have multiple different um, systems in every state. And capping the amount of giving a certain amount of money to each state may or may not provide enough funding to actually provide care to patients. Mm. And as a nurse, our number one concern, of course, is that people get the health care they need determined by their their uh, providers and not by insurance companies or various plans. So but on the other hand, I have to say that in California, we have introduced a bill, SB 562, that would, as California is the sixth largest economy in the, in the world, and it could bring single-payer Medicare yeah. for all type system to California. And, you know, New York State, yeah. which of California would be the sixth largest national economy in the world, New York couldn't be too far behind. Nope. New yeah. York, I was just reading the other day, is only four votes short in the state legislature of state single payer. So, I don't know, Andy Slavitt, maybe we can go state by state under the Susan Collins um, and Bill Cassidy model. What do you think of that, Bill? Well, let, let me ask you 
and your listeners to not start thinking about California, not start thinking about New York, but start thinking about Kansas and start thinking about them today and right now. And here's why. And this is going to get at your question, Brian, in a different way. Mm -hmm. Medicaid expansion is both the most effective way we found to cover people, and it's also, quite frankly, a form of single payer. The state of Kansas, two years ago, Sam Brownback, in order to not have Medicaid expansion in his state, required that both, both houses, the Senate and the legislature, pass Medicaid expansion, which you would assume would be impossible in one of the most conservative states in the country. Well, guess what? For those who don't know it, the House and then yesterday the Senate both passed Medicaid expansion, and now Governor Brownback is threatening to veto it. And they don't yet have a veto-proof majority, but this would be a direct contradiction of what the people in the state want, of what he himself said, and there's 150,000 people that would get covered, that, that to Martha's point would have access to all the care they need if people could put pressure on Sam Brownback yeah. to pass this legislation. That's interesting, Andy. To sign it. So under the Susan Collins Bill Cassidy bill, where the federal government would throw some money at states for the kind of health care system that they wanted, maybe you get a Kansas trying a more free market system. Maybe it works in some states because they set it up right. Maybe it fails in Kansas and they go back. Um, more toward government intervention, uh, but you get the states as the 50 laboratories being able to do it, being able to have their own policies, and then the states uh, can get subsidized to some degree by federal tax dollars. I don't know. Maybe this is the bipartisan compromise for Congress. What do you think? Well, look, we're living, in case people forgot, we have a Republican presidency, we have a Republican House, we have a Republican uh, Senate. So right now, I think uh, we have... This is a Republican uh, bill. This is a Republican bill. So, uh, you know, we all, ought to take, um, we all ought to take stock of the fact that we're probably not going to have single payer before the end of this term. However, there are lots of things we can do, Medicaid expansion being the most important, and when serious-minded Republicans like Bill Cassidy and like Susan Collins uh, put, put things together and they've got a history of bipartisanship, it's 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 not a bad sign. Mm-hmm. Do I like all the elements of the bill? No, I really don't. But I but I think if they got together with some serious minded Democrats like Diana DeGette in the House, like Joe Kennedy in the House, uh, like a number of other folks, and said, "Hey, let's uh, sit down and work to things together," the country would cheer. Even if they didn't love the outcome, they would cheer, mm-hmm. knowing the fact that like Medicaid and Medicare, that if things got that got supported weren't working, people would come back and fix it. And right now. The country is very afraid because Washington is actually trying to break their health care system. John in Nashville, you're on Indivisible. John, thanks so much for calling in. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Trump voter? Uh, No, I'm a Republican, but I did not vote for Trump. Okay. But you're a Republican open to single payer, I understand? Yes, uh... Well, as I see it, the single-payer system would be an excellent system, but the only problem or concern that I have with it is the decisions that get made on what services are approved and how long you have to wait for those services. Uh, Canada Canada has some problems with that issue. Um, uh, Another country as well has some problems with that issue. Outside of that, I don't see where a single-payer system would be a problem. It would be a huge tax burden, 
as far as what we as citizens would have to pay compared to what we're paying in the current Medicare system. But I'd be willing to pay that for universal health care for all. Mm -hmm. John, thank you very much. Uh, John's from Tennessee. Andy Slavitt, the Republicans keep using Tennessee as, you know, the doomsday example of Obamacare, because for whatever reason, in Tennessee, more than in most other states, the exchange model is failing. A lot of the insurance companies have walked away. You're a former insurance company executive. Um, what's, what's happening in Tennessee that they're, they may soon be left with no insurers willing to sell Obamacare exchange policies there? You know, Tennessee and Kentucky present a great contrast because the old governor in Kentucky, Steve Bashir, passed Medicaid expansion and cut the uninsured rate from 22% to about 8%. Now, the governor of Tennessee, who was a Republican, also tried to get Medicaid expansion passed. And in that state, the Koch brothers came in and, and uh, had it blocked in the legislature. That's, that's the history of it. That's not, just, that's not just my opinion. I was there during the time of it. Uh, when that happens... That kicks people off coverage. That drives rates up. And so even though the uninsured rate's gone down significantly, um, that caused an array of problems. Uh, I think the other thing that happened in Tennessee is the same thing that happened in a lot of other states, which is that the Republican Congress in 2015, led by Marco Rubio, purposely defunded some of the funds, about 8 to $10 billion of the funds that existed inside the ACA in order to keep rates stable. And at the time, Senator Rubio uh, was quite proud of that fact because he was running for president. And I think it said words to the effect that he had, he had undermined the ACA. Well, mm. that brought up prices. And, and just and it give put, me, put a lot of competitors me, out of business. Just give me 30 seconds on the contrast with Kentucky. What did they do differently? Well, Kentucky, primarily because they passed Medicaid expansion, um, did a, you know, that, that's really the single biggest thing. And I think the governor in, in Tennessee, to his credit, attempted to pass Medicaid it was blocked by people who, uh, who adamantly disagree with what the beginning of your call showed, which is that, pe- that health care is a right. They believe that health care should not be provided by the government to people who don't in some way earn it themselves. Uh, that's obviously a view that I think the vast majority of the country thinks is outmoded, yet they raised a lot of powerful interest, and they were able to defeat Medicaid expansion in Tennessee, and I think that's mm-hmm. the principal cause of the issue. Right. I guess Medicaid patients tend to be expensive, so when they get taken out of the private exchange system onto the government system, then the cost of private exchange policies become cheaper on the market. Let's get right. one more caller in 7%. here. about 7%. Yep. Ken in Alexandria, Virginia. You're on Indivisible. Hey, Ken. Hello. Thank you. Um, I'll try to make it as brief as possible. Your uh, quote or clip from uh, Bernie Sanders um, is, pro- is what prompted my call. And, and you're a Trump uh, voter, concern, I gather, right? Trump voter? Yes, I, I, I voted for Trump. I really didn't anticipate that he would win. It was a protest vote against uh, everything that's been going on. But okay. let me get back to my point yep. here before I forget what it was. The um, Bernie Sanders clip uh, really uh, points out the fundamental problem in my mind, and that is when you start to define a government benefit as a fundamental human right. You have lost the war. The war is over. Because there is absolutely no way to differentiate between a human right 
to a decent house, a human right to the right diet, a human right to safe cars, a human right to fill in the blank. And once a population of people, voters or, or residents of a dictatorship, become accustomed to government support, it is very easy for any government to take over and do basically whatever it wants. And, and, and Ken, I'm going to leave it there just for time and get a response. Uh, and then we're going to move on to part two of this program. But as the single-payer advocate here tonight, Martha Cool from National Nurses United, um, why not, if democracy is the vehicle for def- deciding what benefits are available to people, uh, well, people are going to elect representatives who want to give them more and more and more and more. I actually think that as a nurse, as someone who cares for children who have cancer, I can't pick between kids who are going to deserve care or not deserve care. I think that we as a society need to care for each other and that part of caring for each other, all of us at some point in our lives are going to need health care, that we should provide it for each other. And the best, most cost-effective way to do it is via a Medicare for All system. And I do believe there is a political opening and an opportunity to actually get this done at this point because people did benefit from Medicaid expansion. They did benefit from having more access to care. And what is going on with the ACA is that parts of it um, are not very functional, and it can't rein in costs because it's a market-based system. Martha Cool and Andy Slavitt, we won't solve health care tonight, but this is a very interesting moment after the failure of the Republican House bill where new coalitions, as we've been hearing in this segment, might be possible. Thank you both so much. Thank you. And thank you, thank callers. You. This is Indivisible. I'm Brian Lehrer. Let's pivot now from norms about health care in Trump's first 100 days to norms about sex. The conservative talk show host Tommy Lahren made the news twice <clears throat> Excuse me, in the last week for very different reasons. If you don't know the name, Tommy Lahren hosts a show on Glenn Beck's network, The Blaze. First, President Trump called Lauren to thank her for her fair coverage of him. On most issues, let's just say she is not exactly the Washington Post editorial page. But just days later, Tommy Lauren got suspended by the blaze. Why? Reportedly for saying this on The View. No, I'm pro-choice, and here's why. I am a constitutional, you know, someone that loves the Constitution. I am someone that's for limited government, and so I can't sit here and be a hypocrite and say I'm for limited government, but I think that the government should decide what women do with their bodies. I can sit here and say that as a Republican, and I can say, you know what, I'm for limited government, so stay out of my, my guns, and you can stay out of my body as well. Well, that little exercise of free speech was apparently a suspendable offense. That's how fiercely conservatism clings to its position against abortion rights for American women. To be fair, the left has a similar thing going on. Remember when some groups that call themselves pro-life feminists wanted to join the Women's March on Washington on the day after the inauguration because on all things other than abortion rights, they couldn't stand Donald Trump's attitudes toward women? Well, here we are at fiercely competing norms, pretty much stuck in place for more than 44 years since Roe versus Wade, and really for longer than that. Well, my next guest 
has written a book called Sex and the Constitution. It's a 500-page history of Sex and the Constitution, but it ends with a question about the Donald Trump, Jeff Sessions, Neil Gorsuch, if he's confirmed, era. Will the Supreme Court rulings granting abortion rights, same-sex marriage rights, even the right to have gay sex at all, survive intact? And then there are the emerging areas of the right of businesses to refuse service to gay people on religious grounds and transgender constitutional rights on which the Trump administration has already switched sides from Obama. Jeffrey Stone teaches law at the University of Chicago, is one of the nation's top constitutional scholars. The full title of his book is Sex and the Constitution, Sex, Religion, and Law from America's Origins to the 21st Century. Professor Stone, welcome to Indivisible. Thanks, Brian. Delighted to be here. And here's my questions for listeners. For conservatives, if you are a small government conservative like Tommy Lauren, why would you want the government involved in regulating sex at all? If people have different religious views about abortion, why get the government involved? Why should government tell transgender people what bathrooms they should have to use? The bathrooms on their birth certificates? Really? Under the law? You want your tax dollars to police that? With every transgender American, one eight four four seven four five talk And for liberals, if a baker objects to making cakes for same-sex weddings because it's against their religion, do you need the government to force them? Is that what you want government to do in the name of civil rights? And strategically, is that the best way to continue to bring traditional Christians to acceptance of same-sex marriage as normal. So we have a question on the line for conservatives. If you're a small government service uh, conservative, why do you want the government in people's bedrooms and people's reproductive choices and people's religious choices in that respect, uh, telling people what bathrooms? And for liberals, do you need the Constitution to tell bakers that they have to bake cakes for every kind of wedding that they may object to. Call us, both of you, 844-745-TALK. People in both groups, 844-745-TALK. We'll take your calls and talk to Jeffrey Stone right after this. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC Radio in New York, where we talk about changing norms on Tuesday nights on Indivisible, Indivisible during the first 100 days of the Trump administration. You heard the caller questions before the break. My guest is Jeffrey Stone, who teaches law at the University of Chicago and has written Sex and the Constitution, Sex, Religion, and Law from America's Origins to the 21st Century. And let's start with a little bit of history. Um, you write, Professor Stone, that the Founding Fathers saw traditional Christianity as an impediment 
to the pursuit of happiness. Really? And did that have something to do with sex? Well, the framers basically lived in a world of the Enlightenment. And uh, many of them, following the views of people like Voltaire and Rousseau, uh, were very skeptical about many of the traditional Christian dogmas, uh, especially those that interfered with the pursuit of happiness. And the world in which the framers lived was one in which abortion was perfectly legal, in which there were no laws against obscenity, um, which actually had quite a bit of sexuality uh, in a range of different ways. Um, and they never saw those as problems for the law to intervene. Um, so basically, I think it's fair to say that, that at the time the Constitution was adopted, um, we were living in a society where only a very small percentage of citizens were members of, uh, of a church, uh, and in which the separation of church and state was a fundamental precept of what they thought the United States should aspire to. Very few Americans were members of churches at the beginning yes. of the country. I thought, you know, our, maybe it's romanticized view of history is there was a church on every hill. No, not at all. There was, of course, in, in parts of Puritan New England, but in most of the United States, which was very rural and uh, pretty uh, backwater, uh, there were very few churches, very few preachers, and in, in many of those states, there was very little religion. And in the 19th century, you have the norm of privacy valued so highly that almost everything sexual was considered beyond the realm of government, including that abortions were legal, information about contraception circulated freely, and sodomy laws were rarely enforced. So long before Roe versus Wade, abortion was legal in the United States in the 1800s? Indeed, abortion was perfectly legal in the United States until near the end of the 19th century. Um, when it's part of the social purity movement, um, states began uh, legislating against abortion. Um, and by the beginning of the 20th century, every state in the nation had adopted laws uh, prohibiting abortion. But it's important to understand that laws against abortion are not part of the American heritage. They're not part of the world of the framers. Uh, they were imposed upon America by very strong religious uh, zealots. Um, and were opposed by most Americans through much of our, our history. Um, and so what Roe v. Wade did was to really reestablish uh, a long tradition in the United States, in England, and indeed in all of Western civilization, that abortion was not a crime. Even in the Middle Ages, where the church uh, clearly regarded abortion as a serious sin, um, there were not laws prohibiting abortion. And if people had a different faith or a different view about abortion, they were allowed to exercise that view. So why aren't more conservatives like Tommy Lauren? I'm a conservative, she said. I'm a Republican. I don't want the government telling me what I can do with my guns, and I don't want the government telling me what I can do with my body. Well, part of it is that there has developed a strong religious view about abortion and about the status of the fetus, and certainly for people who sincerely believe that um, – that having an abortion is the moral equivalent of killing a two-year-old, um, which in fact very few people actually believe because the law has never treated them equivalently, but um, nonetheless who believe they believe that, um, it's easy to understand why they would be strongly opposed to abortion. And for other conservatives, it's interesting what's happened politically. Um, in the 1960s, uh, more Republicans were pro-abortion than Democrats. Um, and that's because Democrats uh, included a large percentage, most of the Catholics in this country. 
what Richard Nixon did and then Ronald Reagan built upon was to basically make the Republican Party an anti-abortion party, uh, in part as a way of attracting Catholics and then later evangelicals um, into the Republican Party. And as that happened, the party itself simply took on uh, the precepts of the, the moral majority and the Christian right. Denise in Panama City, Florida. You're on Indivisible. Denise, thanks so much for calling. Hi. I have a, an, an issue about, um, sorry, it's about how we pay our taxes. If if all of our taxes go to pay for uh, our government buildings, where we get our marriage certificates, things like that, but gay people are not allowed to get married, should they ha- should they be able to pay lower taxes um, because they shouldn't have to pay for that office if they can't use it? And now, uh, maybe permanently, we're beyond that point, right? Yeah, I, I think that, that, yeah, I think with the decision of the Supreme Court in Obergefell, which was bitterly contested within the court, um, I would be surprised if a, a conservative court, including, say, Judge Gorsuch, and even should it come to pass another uh, Trump nominee at some point, um, I don't think the court will be quick to overrule uh, the same-sex marriage decision. Uh, I think that's true partly because the reaction to the decision has been much more tempered than the reaction to Roe v. Wade. Um, and the fact is that although there are many people in the country who disapprove of it, uh, they don't feel the same passion uh, on same-sex marriage that they do on abortion. And that's understandable, because if you, again, truly believe that abortion is the moral equivalent of killing a child, that's pretty serious stuff. Um, But we haven't seen that kind of a pushback to the same-sex marriage decision. Um, And the other problem the court would have is that uh, I don't know the numbers now, but there's something like half a million or a million married same-sex couples in the United States today. And if the court were to overrule that decision, it would cast those marriages into a state of chaos. So I don't think the court will overrule that decision, even if it becomes much more conservative than it is today. I do think it would overrule Roe v. Wade, and that's different. Nathaniel in Nashville, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Nathaniel. Hey, how are you? Good. What are you thinking? Well, um, you know, you had asked about uh, do you think that if I'm for small government, you know, should um, should I let the government dictate, you know, uh, should marriage be between a, a man and a woman or two men or so forth? I, I don't think it's a question for the Supreme Court or the federal government to uh, to pass judgment on. This is a state's rights issue. Uh, you know, the Constitution gives very specific powers to the federal government, and what it doesn't give to the federal government leaves up to the states. Uh, states have always, um, you know, regulated marriage. They've defined what marriage is, and I think it's up to each individual state. If Massachusetts, California, any of those other ones want to allow gay marriage, then, then that's fine. You know, the citizens of each state should uh, get a chance to, mm-hmm. to vote on that. But when you have the citizens in the state of Tennessee... When 80% of the citizens in the state where I am here, Tennessee, 80% voted to say, hey, we want to recognize marriage as between a man and a woman. And then to have the federal government come in and say, oh, no, you're wrong, then I, I just don't think it's a, a question that, that they get to mm-hmm. uh, get to define. I hear what you're saying. So, Nathaniel, let me check you on, 
on this one. Um, where are you on the question of abortion rights? Personally, if you don't um, mind saying. Well, no, I, I don't mind saying. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's no there's no black and white answer to abortion. I'm against using abortion as a form of birth control, um, but I do understand that there are instances where uh, it, it may be medically necessary to save the the life mm. of the mother. I mean, have, right. you know, because basically you would be trading the one life for another life if if the mother could have the baby, but she was going to die. So, so, so here's it, why very- I here's why I ask, and I get your distinctions there. Those are distinctions that a lot of people make um, because you raise the state's rights question. I looked up Jeff Sessions' record as a senator, and he would say the same thing that you just said about how marriage and transgender bathroom rights should be up to state, should not be federal rights. And as a senator, he supported ending um, Roe versus Wade and leaving abortion rights up to the states, yes, but he also supports a federal ban on certain kinds of abortions he doesn't approve of, no states' rights there, if he could get his views enacted into federal law, and he wanted a federal law limiting embryonic stem cell research not to leave it up to the state's relationships with their medical research institutions. So is states' rights kind of a sham in the area of sex and the Constitution? You know what I mean? Liberals will want the federal government to take their side on everything that they can, and conservatives saying states' rights only go there until they can get the federal government to enact their views as federal law also? No, I mean, I think we should uh, we should really focus on exactly what powers are given to the federal government. I mean, as far as Jeff Sessions is concerned, you know, if, if he wants to split hairs and say, okay, states' rights here and maybe federal government there, I mean, th- those are really questions for, for him uh, to answer and and you know explain why he he is splitting those hairs, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, but for me I, I think that really you know it, it's up to the citizens of each of each state to to decide the the things that are not specifically the powers not specifically given to the federal government by the Constitution. Mm-hmm. All right, sounds like you're consistent, Nathaniel in Nashville. Thank you very much. Uh, same question for you, Jeff Stone. Is there a hypocrisy issue here? Um, there, there is hypocrisy uh, on these issues. Um, the answer I would give to the question about um, the Supreme Court and same-sex marriage uh, is that the Constitution guarantees that no state shall deny any person the equal protection of the laws. And the court has long recognized in a variety of cases that marriage is a fundamental right. So laws that provide, for example, that a prisoner is not allowed to marry, the Supreme Court held unconstitutional. Uh, Laws that provided that a person who hadn't paid for child support could not remarry uh, were held unconstitutional. Um, And fundamentally, we do in our society rely upon the Supreme Court to check uh, majoritarian abuse when it comes to issues of both equality and fundamental freedoms. And uh, if a state passed a law, for example, that said that you know, no, no person can have more than two children because we're concerned about overpopulation, uh, a lot of conservatives would demand the Supreme Court hold that unconstitutional. Uh, and so I think it is the responsibility of the court to enforce these rights. And I think that the decision on same-sex marriage uh, and the decision on abortion were both correct. Uh, I understand why they're controversial. 
Um, but I think they're clearly appropriate understandings of the fundamental rights Americans possess, uh, that being a right of equality and also a fundamental right to marry. Donna in Moorhead, Minnesota. You're on Indivisible. Hi, Donna. Hi. I'm responding to the question about um, businesses being allowed to not serve gay uh, patrons if they wish, yes. if they consider it um, going Again. against their religion. And I don't think, when that argument is brought up, I always think of the time when blacks were not served and people could claim it was against their religion, or when black and white couples, um, because it was against someone's religion for blacks and whites to marry, then they shouldn't be treated like any other couple. And I do think um, having more and more religion infused into our government uh, is, is, is not a good thing. Separation of church and state is an excellent idea. Same thing when it comes to businesses not wanting to provide any insurance that would provide for abortion. Nobody makes anyone have an abortion, but insurance should cover it. A friend of mine brought up everyone. an example on the other side the other day and said, well, if I'm a baker and two neo-Nazi white supremacists are getting married and they're going to have a neo-Nazi white supremacist-themed uh, wedding that I find offends my morality, I don't want to have to make cake for those people. What would you say back to that person? I can see the dilemma there. Yes, indeed. I think I would, unfortunately, probably say make it not very well. <laughs> Donna, thank you very much. What do you think the Constitution would say, Jeff Stone? I guess one argument, pushback against my friend, is um, neo-Nazi white supremacy is a um, belief system. Um, being gay is just your status. So then it's more like being black. Right. So these issues arise only in states that prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And I think only about 22 states have such laws, and the, and the federal government does not. Uh, in most states in the United States, uh, anybody can discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation for whatever reason, whether religious or otherwise. Um, I think that's unfortunate, but it's important to recognize that these issues arise only in situations where the law itself prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Now, in that situation, I find myself somewhat torn. Um, as your caller said, the Constitution does intend to protect uh, the, the separation of, of church and state and to prevent the state from imposing religion upon others. But it also protects the freedom of religion. And it, it says the state should not compel people to act in ways that are, in fact, inconsistent with their sincerely held religious beliefs. And I think that's an important principle. Um, and so uh, I do think that just as the Supreme Court once held that states could not constitutionally require Seventh-day Adventists to work on Saturdays as a condition to receiving unemployment compensation, um, and just as I think the, the, the court should have held but didn't, that a state could not compel members of the Native American church from using peyote and make that a crime, given the fact that during Prohibition, um, Catholics were allowed to use wine for sacramental purposes. I mean, I think this is a really complicated issue. And I do think we have to be both sympathetic to the individual who sincerely has a strong religious belief about the need not to do something, 
Um, and at the same time, we have to recognize that um, those actions can be really harmful to others. Yeah. We, but, but I do think that basically we, we can't dismiss the religious claims here out of hand. I think they have to be taken seriously. Before you go, we just have a minute left, but as a constitutional scholar, I'm curious to get your take on something we touched on briefly early in the show. This is a conservative senator's take on the word rights. And as someone more liberal who has worked for the ACLU and things like that, I want to get your reaction. It was on Sunday's Meet the Press, Senator Mike Lee of Utah on whether health care should be considered a right. Insofar as he's talking about a federal right, you know, rights are things the government can't do to you. Uh, rights are not something that the government must do for you or provide for you. Give me your 30-second take on your definition of a right. It, would a right only be for you something that the government can't do to you, not something has, that the government has to do for you? So from a constitutional standpoint, that is pretty much the definition of a right. It, pro- it prohibits the government from doing certain things. Uh, and so Mike Lee has that more or less right as a constitutional matter. On the other hand, the government by law can create all sorts of rights if it wishes to do so. And there are rights that can be removed by law as well. Um, but Lee's right, I think, in, in saying that the idea that there's a constitutional right, right that the government has to okay. do something affirmatively for you is yeah. a little bit uh, odd. Jeffrey Stone teaches constitutional law at the University of Chicago and is the author now of Sex and the Constitution, Sex, Religion, and Law from America's Origins to the 21st Century. Thank you so much for joining us on Indivisible. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Tomorrow on Indivisible, our Wednesday night host, Charlie Sykes, speaks with political analyst and Weekly Standard founder Bill Kristol about what the failed health care bill means for Republicans and what comes next for the GOP. Tomorrow night here on Indivisible, I'm Brian Lehrer. Talk to you next Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening. Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.